Good morning, Red Mountain Church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. If, uh, if I have not met you, my name is Joe Johnson, and I am the RUF campus minister at Birmingham Southern. And my wife and I and our family uh, go to this church and love this church and love you. And uh, I just kind of want to start by saying I miss you. Uh, and especially right now, uh, especially with everything um, going on, uh, maybe that um, missing you is even more acute, acutely felt. And I know you maybe feel the same way. Looking forward to being back with you. But for this morning... Uh, God has ordained for us to be in Philippians chapter 4, um, 2 through 9. And that is just sort of the next passage in our Philippians series as we close it down next week through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. But this actually is an amazingly appropriate text for what is going on in the world right now. Because Paul here, in these few verses, talks about peace. Peace that surpasses understandings. Peace that doesn't make sense in a broken world full of injustice that we have felt more acutely in these past couple weeks, full of coronavirus, full of economic fear. Maybe talking about peace this morning is exactly what we need. And so, if you have your Bibles or in your bulletin or emails or however you're looking at it, let's read together Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. This is God's Word. I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray before we dive into this together and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that we get to come together even in this way before your word because your word is alive and it changes our hearts. And so help us to see this peace that surpasses understanding that will guard our hearts only comes from you, Jesus, and that it may change the way we live here and now, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my house over the past couple months, maybe like yours, um, has been a house of conflict. Um, and everything's all right in the Johnson house, but we've never spent this much time together in such a small space. Uh, four people and a dog and 1,400 square feet in downtown Birmingham produces conflict. And it produces conflict between me and April. Uh, We've been married for seven years, but we've never spent this much time together. And though our marriage is great, conflict has arisen more than normal in the past couple months. We have conflict with our children. I love our children. I love spending time with them. I've never spent this much time with my children. And conflict arises more often than most. And even conflict, unsurprisingly, between our children. With one four-year-old that likes everything in a particular way, and a one-year-old that wants to destroy everything Conflict is sort of all around us. 
And what's strange about it is that it's conflict that we can't escape from. Um, it's conflict that I can't run away to work or I can't run away to this or that. These past few months, we're just sort of stuck in it and forced uh, to deal with something. And that's sort of a humorous microcosm of what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, there's conflict and hardships and sadness seemingly everywhere. With the murder of George Floyd and countless others, we're dealing with racial strife, maybe that we haven't normally dealt with on a daily basis, we're afraid to say. We're still dealing with a pandemic, as all of us know, and the fear that comes with that, and fear of the economy, fear over the future. There's just hard stuff all around us, and the uniqueness of this time is that we almost feel like we can't get away from it. We can't ignore it. It's always there. It's always present, and we have to deal with it. And this text, as Paul goes through and now is sort of wrapping up his letter to his favorite church, this goodbye letter in his mind, because he doesn't know if he's going to live and die, he starts wrapping it up by applying the gospel to very particular situations. And the word that's repeated in this text is peace. And what Paul is going to talk about is, is how we can live out peace in a broken world full of conflict, strife, sadness, anxiousness, and worry. And he's not going to say an artificial peace. He's not going to talk about like a band-aid peace. Like, just don't worry about the hard stuff, but just have inner peace. Just worry about yourself. No, he's going to talk about a very particular peace. A peace that belongs to God. A peace that we can't achieve on our own. And before we even get into this, we need to say that this is a peace that only Jesus can give us. The one who bore our sins upon himself, the one who took our wrath that we deserve so that we can be reconciled with God. He gets our wrath we get his peace. And so what Paul is going to do here in these few three paragraphs is he's going to challenge us to live out this gospel peace in a broken world. Because we've been reconciled with God, we now can have peace with one another. And so what does this gospel peace look like in 2020? What does it look like with strife everywhere? What does it look like with pain all around us? Well, I think Paul tells us three things as we walk through this together. This is what gospel peace looks like. It looks like reconciliation. It looks like prayer. And it looks like heavenly thoughts. He calls us to reconciliation, prayer, and heavenly thoughts. This is what living gospel peace looks like in the here and now. So first, gospel peace, this peace Jesus has accomplished for us. It looks like reconciliation, Now, Philippians is not a letter um, that was written to America in 2020. This is a letter written to Philippi in the first century. And so it's going to address particular problems in this congregation. And this is a very particular problem that he comes to in verse 2, an argument between two people. And two people that we don't know. We don't know much about them. They don't appear anywhere else in Scripture. But we know a few context clues about what's going on here. That these two people, these two women, disagree about something significant. And we know it's significant because Paul is addressing it. If it was something kind of arbitrary, Paul wouldn't even really get into it. But he brings this up. These two names that we're still talking about 2,000 years later, he brings it up. There's something big that's being disagreed with. And though we don't know these two people, some context clues tell us that they're important people. That they're probably leaders in the church as Sinclair Ferguson suggests, that these are 
probably founding members, leaders, who may have been part of uh, Lydia's prayer group on the side of the river in Acts 16 when the church at Philippi began. And so this division, whatever it might be, this argument is dividing the church as they are leaders, as they are respected, as they are ministry workers. People are picking sides and the church is feeling division. But we also know, thirdly, that, that, that this is not an essential disagreement. Meaning that if this was something of heresy, if this was false theology, Paul would go at that. We have seen him do it before. He is unafraid to do that. But he doesn't do that. He actually doesn't even bring up their disagreement at all. And so we know this isn't essential to the gospel, but it needs to be dealt with. And so here's what Paul does, and here's what's amazing. He gives them principles of reconciliation to walk through conflict in the church. And the first principle he gives them is verse 2, where he says to agree in the Lord. Now, this is not Paul saying, look, let's just focus on what we agree on and not what we disagree on. But he's actually calling these two women, these heavyweights of leadership and ministry, to remember what's absolutely essential. To remember that they agree in the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they both need his blood, that they both need his grace, that they are sinners saved by the grace of God. He calls them to remember what's most important before they enter into conflict. Come together in the gospel. And the second principle, which is really just doubling down on the first, is in verse 3 when he says that your names are in the book of life. That these women who've worked side by side with Paul in the gospel are one in the Lord. They are sisters in Christ. He's reminding them of their identity in Jesus first, who they are. They are not first divided. They are not first against each other. They are first together in the family of God. And what I think Paul is trying to do is he's not just reminding them of who they are themselves, but he's reminding them of what they forgot about the other. She is your sister. Her name is next to you in the book of life. The role of God's people, the the role book of God's people, the, the book that we don't deserve to be listed in, but Jesus puts us in there. He reminds them of who they really are together, to reconcile as sisters. And when we do that, when we love someone who is maybe hard to love and reconcile together over Jesus, we learn something about Jesus that we wouldn't otherwise. We learn about his reconciliation between us and the Father. In this uh, moment of conflict in my house, one of the uh, dynamics of the conflict is, is really that I'm learning that I'm just an impatient father. Of being around my children this much, uh, one of the things um, that I've seen in myself is that I can, I can kind of lose it over something very, very small. And my daughter is four years old right now, and she asks a lot of questions. She's in the question-asking phase. And she'll ask a question, and I'll begin to answer it, and then in the middle of my answer, she asks another question, and it's kind of endless, and it's kind of a family joke now that this can kind of send me off, and we laugh about it, but I, I keep learning how impatient I am. And, and as I continue to try to be patient with my daughter, as I continue to sort of work through that conflict in my heart, I hope one of the things I'm beginning to learn is though I'm impatient, in the midst of this, I'm learning how patient Jesus is with me. That something very small from this beautiful, intelligent, wonderful little girl that I love can end my patience. My sin and pride, my arrogance, never ends Jesus' patience for me. 
actually what we find when we reconcile with one another is we actually experience more of the peace of God. We learn more about the gospel because of it. And so here's the question, where do we need to pursue unity in our life? Where do we need to reconcile? And just as an aside, there are some relationships that will not be reconciled. There are some relationships where something has happened, where forgiveness is almost impossible to come to in this world. And I understand that, and Paul understands that. But that's not the kind of relationships he's talking about. But in the church, where can we pursue unity? And a very particular application, maybe right now, for white Christians is to reach out to people who look different than us. To our brothers and sisters of color right now who are hurting, and maybe we don't understand it, and maybe we'll never understand it. But maybe this is a time to listen and to pursue unity and to reconcile where we can, because in it we experience more of Jesus. Gospel peace looks like reconciliation. It's what Jesus has done for us. Secondly, what gospel peace looks like is prayer. You knew at some point I was going to bring up the application of prayer because Paul does, and that's what pastors do. But if you get to verse 4, verse 4 is one of those verses that divides sort of the world. Because you're one of two people. You're someone who hates verse 4, or you're someone who loves verse 4. Because verse 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And if you're anything like me, you really have a question with always, right? Rejoice always? Rejoice with injustice everywhere and you're feeling helpless on what to do. Rejoice when you're worried about this virus. Rejoice in a world like we live in now. Is Paul really saying that Philippi was so great that they could just rejoice all the time? But then again, he doubles down in verse 5, verse 6, excuse me, and says, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything? Like, is that even possible? I had a, a mentor in seminary who, uh, a guy named Bebo Elkin, who I love dearly, one of the founders of RUF. And uh, every now and then, he wouldn't do this a lot, but every now and then I would, I would share something with him of, of something I'm struggling with. And I'd share maybe, you know, uh, Bebo, I'm struggling with um, caring too much about what people think of me. I just care too much what they think. And every now and then his response to that would be, uh, well, stop. Like, stop doing that. That's a bad thing. You shouldn't do that anymore. And and it would be that, that kind of simple, and, and sometimes that's exactly what I needed to hear, and sometimes I would leave his office and think, that doesn't help me at all, right? That's kind of what I'm feeling Paul is doing here, to some sense of, don't be anxious. I, how? Why? How, I, how can you just say that? Is Paul simply telling us, don't think about our problems, don't ever be anxious, don't ever worry? I don't know. I actually think Paul is giving us the power to, to get through a life full of sadness and worry, and pain. He's giving us the power to do that in Jesus. Because here's how he says to do that. Look what he says in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to anybody. The Lord is at hand. This is the reason why we can rejoice, and the reason why we don't need to be anxious. The Lord is at hand. And that could mean one of a few things. It could mean that he's saying that Jesus is coming back soon. And Jesus is going to make all things right. The first century Christians we're consumed with the second coming of Jesus. And so maybe that's what he's talking about. Jesus is coming soon. Or as some commentators suggest that maybe he's saying that by his spirit, Jesus is here, that God is with us. But either way, what he's getting at is the reason for our rejoicing and the reason that we don't need to be anxious 
is that God is near to his people. He's always been a God who's been near to his people. He's never a God who's distant and far away. He's always with us. So what he's getting at is don't ignore your problems, but he's saying, remember that Jesus is with you in your problems. He's with you in your worry. He's with you in your anxiousness. He's with you in your pain. He's with you in your confusion. He's with you in your worried about your children. He's with you in your sleepless nights. He has not left you. And so Paul's simple application here is to, the one, to run to the one who's never left you, to continue to pray, to let your requests be known to God, to bring your burdens to Jesus, because he is the one who carries the burden of sin and shame, our sin and shame upon himself in our place. He calls us to a life of prayer. He calls us to a life of bringing our burdens not believing that we're on our own, but to him. And what's interesting, as I'm in this room right now, one of the things I acutely miss about you, and I miss about this church, is is I think it's such a reminder to come in and to see other people and to remember I'm not alone. And to remember I don't have to carry my burdens on my own. And and the thing that I miss about this table that's still right there, the table that we'll return to soon, the table that serves us our bread and wine where we remember the body and blood of Christ, it's that table that reminds me that Jesus carries my ultimate burden for me. It's an invitation to a life of prayer to tell Jesus our sadness and our pain and to let him carry it for us. I think that's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says, "...and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding." God's peace, which makes no sense in a broken world. It makes no sense to our minds. It will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's an active peace. It's a protective peace. He calls us to prayer to remember that peace, to clothe ourselves in armor as we go out into this world and see pain and confusion and experience sadness. What do we need to pray for? What do we need to come to Jesus with even today? Because what Paul is saying here is the opposite of anxiety is actually prayer. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we just need to talk about our confusion in this world. Maybe our prayer life can really look like running to Jesus and putting down our burdens upon him. Thirdly, gospel peace looks like heavenly thoughts. This last paragraph from Paul, starting in verse 8, is one of his lists. Paul loves lists. And this one is a little bit unique. Starting in verse 8, read with me. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace, again, will be with you. Uh, This list is not Paul just saying, hey, think about some randomly good things that I thought up. And I don't think he's saying here, like, don't think about the bad things in the world, ignore those, but kind of be pie in the sky happy. No, this is a list of virtues, virtues that Christians should love, virtues that Christians should pursue, virtues that Christians should practice, as he says in verse 9. But when you think about it, why does he leave this church with this list? 
Why these particular things? What is he really talking about here? Is it just to think about good things that we can do? I think that's a part of it. But when you ask the question, who is this list about? Like, who truly fulfills this list? The answer becomes really clear. Like, what is the truest thing that we know? What's the most honorable thing that we know? Who is the most just that we know? Who is the most pure that we know? Who is the most lovely that we know? Who is the most commendable? Who is the most excellent? And who is the most worthy of our praise? I think to some degree what Paul is saying in verse 8 is in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of worry, in the midst of fear, in the midst of guilt, think about Jesus. Think about the one who's with you. Think about the one who hears your prayers. Think about his truth, that he is the word made flesh. Think about his honor, that he is the son of God who's come from glory. Think about his justice, that he is the one who stood in our place, that we may be justified before the Father. Think about his purity, that he is the spotless lamb of God. Think about his loveliness, the second person of the Trinity. Think about his commendableness, of whom the Father says, this is my son, of whom I'm well pleased. Think about his excellence, King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and think about his worthiness to be praised, the one of whom the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I think Paul is calling our hearts in the midst of brokenness all around us not to ignore the brokenness, but to think about Jesus in the midst of the storms, to think heavenly thoughts of the one who will come one day, someday, and make all of this go away. For there is no more pain and no more sadness and no more sin. Think of heaven. When I was in seminary, I read an article in a local newspaper about a man named Wendell McGrary. Wendell McGrary died in those years that I was in seminary. He was an older man. He was a World War II veteran. And during World War II, served as a POW and the reason this was just a local news article, but the reason it made local headlines is that his family, uh, when cleaning out some of his stuff from the house and kind of going through the memories of their lost loved one, they found a journal. And it was a journal of Wendell McGrary's who kept it while he was a soldier during World War II and kept it while he was a POW. And so it really was a historical artifact. It was, it was incredibly interesting not just to know some of the thoughts of of their loved one, but just to kind of understand that season of our history. And as they began to open it and read it, none of the family had ever read this before, they began to notice that this was not just a journal, that actually it was a series of letters. And it was a letter written every day while he was a POW to a particular person. Um, Every day, Wendell McGrary wrote a letter to his mother. And as they began to read it, letters that she would never read, letters that were never sent just for him, as they would read it, they they would see that some of the letters his daughter said were just kind of, here's what we ate today, and here's, here's just kind of what we did today. Some of them were about the atrocities and the pain that he was going through, and they were deeply emotional. But as you read them, she said, you see that that it was the hope of a boy wanting to talk to his mom in the midst of pain that flies off the page. And it was that hope, she thinks, is that got him through every day of that suffering. The hope of talking to his mother again. The hope of being united with the one that he loves the most. 
I think in some sense what Paul was calling us to think about here is being with Jesus again. Is being brought up in glory with him. Is being in a world that makes sense again. As his people united, fully united with him. And when our hearts and minds are on that, we begin to change the way we live now. We begin to have hope in a hurting world. We begin to have boldness to do things that scare us. We begin to have courage to love those that are hard to love and to do things that are hard to do. When we say think of heavenly things, we don't mean to just think. But as Paul moves on to verse 9, he says to practice these things. And when we practice these things, the God of peace will be with us. The God who brings peace even to this world. What is our thought life like right now? It's a convicting question to me. My thought life is a lot about the news. My thought life is a lot about despair. My thoughts center around things that leave me feeling hopeless. And some of that I need to sit in, with guilt and shame. But maybe, as the church, our thoughts can be about Jesus. And when our thoughts are about Jesus, we will pursue what's true. We will pursue what's just. We will pursue what's lovely. We will love those that are hard to love. And we will repent of sin and be his people, his hands and feet in this world. That's what gospel peace looks like. Think of Jesus and be his people. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning as we come together to your word that penetrates the hearts that's convicting and yet deeply encouraging. Help us to experience this peace. Peace that does not leave us lazy. Peace that does not leave us without good works. But peace, peace that holds us close to you and enables us to follow you and be your people. Bring peace to our world. Bring peace to our nation. Bring peace to Birmingham. Bring peace to our hearts that we may love you and serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.